welcome to the LDS Fishers of Men podcast. I am your host, Alan, uh, coming at you once again from my fortress of solitude, the garage gym, after yet another chest workout on this Monday, the International Chest Day of the Week. Everybody who lifts knows that Monday is International Chest Day, just the way it is. And I suppose I'm no different. I've fallen into that trap. I uh, I don't know why. It just Monday just feels like chest day. It just works. You know, it's one of those things. Um, coming at you again with another podcast here. I was I was wondering what to talk about, and and I wound up um, actually honing in on what we've been talking about when Come Follow Me. You know, it's it's funny because I think a lot of times we get these, you know, these admonitions to study these things. We get manuals and stuff like that, and we are content to to allow other people and and you know other influences and stuff like that to spoon feed us what we what we think that we should know, right? And this does not apply to, obviously, the the brethren. You know, obviously, I'm not I'm not I'm not throwing shade on on student manuals. I'm not throwing shade on any of these you know approved reading stuff at all. I think what we do many times though is that we we will even if we're going to the student manuals or the study manuals if we're following that in that stuff, we will wind up not going directly to the source and not studying what these manuals and these guides are trying to drive us towards, right? Um, I listened to Michael B. Rush uh, just barely in his last presentation. Um, I, I love Michael B. Rush, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't know that I I am on on board with everything that he writes in his books and stuff like that, but I do think that he is a good man and a solid Latter-day Saint, and I enjoy, at, at, at the very least, I can put the stuff that he puts out, and I can consider it. I Obviously, it's not signed off by prophets and apostles and stuff like that, but I can put it on my bookshelf as, as a, you know, a spiritual science fiction at the very least. It's fun to consider, it's fun to think about and stuff like that. But you know, I I I what I hang my hat on is uh the scriptures. What I hang my hat on is the words and the uh quotes from prophets and apostles. Uh the most recent being the most important. It just it's one of those things, but one of the things that he actually brought up in his in his uh, presentation was, and he included himself in this, where he says, you know, the Lord wants to share with us marvelous things. He wants to share his knowledge. He wants to share with us. He wants us to know everything that's in here, that's in these, that's in these books, uh, that the, in these standard uh, canon that we have, right? As Latter-day Saints, we have all this all this access to these things that a lot of other people, most other people, uh, don't even consider to be scripture and don't consider at all. You know, we we have access to all this stuff, and the Lord wants us to understand. He wants us to know the doctrine. He wants us to know, you know, the mysteries that are within these texts. But if we don't go to the texts, if we don't open up the scriptures, and they're here on our phone, right? If we don't, if we don't come and seek, then we're not going to be given anything, right? And it really struck a chord with me as I listened to that, and I said, "Gosh, dang, he's right. He really is right." You know, I think a lot of times, and I've I've definitely been guilty of that. In my life, in the past, you know, we we won't consider the source material. You know, we we go through "Come Follow Me," and uh, it comes time for family night, and we haven't read 
the chapters, right, that we're supposed to be on for that week. And we wind up just kind of doing what it suggests in the in the uh, the the gospel library, right? We just we kind of just go through the motions. We're doing ourselves and our children, our families, a uh, disservice when we do that, brothers and sisters. And there's there's so much good stuff to glean from this. Um, and so I figured, I said, you know what? Because the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, is one of my all-time favorite stories. It is something that I connected with so, so much with on my mission. And just, it was really part of my uh, spiritual awakening and part of my conversion, I think. You know, I was born into the church, but every one of us has to be a convert or, or we won't last. If you're, if you're here and you haven't been converted, you're a cultural Mormon. And we need to be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, true disciples of Jesus Christ, right? That's the goal. And if you're going to be that, then you need to be converted. Um, and, and I said, you know what? This is a great excuse for me to dive into Exodus, to, you know, maybe if there's those of you out there and I, I'm going to throw in my, my hat there with Michael B. Rush and say, hey, this, this includes me. You know, don't, don't just use me as your, as your come follow me study and stuff. You know what I mean? You need to study this stuff yourself. Uh, so hopefully you are. But, you know, if, if you have read it or if you're going to read it and you want some supplemental spiritual uh, sauce here to, to add to it, a little spiritual sauce to add to your... your your hamburger, right? Your scriptural hamburger, uh, then that's totally fine. And I think that you know there could be some good there. I, I listen to. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Whenever I work out is when I listen to scriptural stuff, or I'll listen to some Glenn Beck or something like that. I don't listen to hard rock or anything like that. When when I'm when I get into the zone to work out, I want to hear about you know something scriptural or something like that. I want to kind of have that time to listen. And it winds up being really, really cool for me. But um, let me get into it here. Let me quit blabbing and just get into it. So let's go to Exodus chapter 1. So I'm not going to go every single verse here. I'm, I'm going to skip and, and jump around here a little bit, but there's some really cool stuff here in Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 2, right? And maybe this will even be a, a couple-part uh, podcast. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I wanted to kind of bring to light some just some interesting facts, some interesting things to consider when we are read, reading this stuff as we're going through studying Come Follow Me and how we can apply this uh, to us, and how, how this really is a great metaphor f- uh, for us. And like Nephi, we should be looking for opportunities to liken the Scriptures to ourselves. So, I guess we can set the stage here. Uh, the children of Israel needed a safe place to grow and become a nation, right? The whole reason why they were brought into Egypt was to save their lives, right? It was to save Jacob and and the, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? That was the entire reason they were brought into Egypt. And uh, Pharaoh obviously welcomed them in with open arms. This was the family of the the uh, second in command to in Egypt, who was Joseph, right? So it, it was a, a very safe... Uh, place to be. There was food. There was protection. Okay, they enjoyed the the spoils of Egypt uh, for for quite some time. And you know, a, a lot of people might come to the or have the thought of, well, why why not Israel? Why not the Palestine area and stuff like that? Well, if you look at that time. There was a lot of wars and stuff, and there was a lot of uh, power grabs going back and forth, a lot of bloodshed in that area. It wasn't safe, bottom line. It was not a safe place to be. You didn't want to be there during that time. <laughs> Go figure. That area has a lot of issues, huh? 
Um, Israel was in the land of Egypt for 430 years in all, right? So they were there for, for quite some time. And they were, of course, they. this is the children of Abraham. This is the children of Isaac, Jacob, right? There were promises made to those patriarchs that applied to their children. And so the Lord is obviously going to fulfill the covenants that he has made with their fathers. Okay? And even though, even though there are, you know, whenever you're in bondage like that, it's going to be really hard on the people and stuff. But, you know, there were some interesting things that because of that bondage, like they stayed pure, they didn't intermingle with the Egyptians. Um, there was an enmity between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, right? So it's, again, no, no intermarrying. They, they retained their, um, they retained their identity as a nation. They retained their tribes, right? They, they all knew which, which one of the 12 sons they belonged to, even when they numbered in the thousands and thousands, okay? They knew their genealogy. That was a point of pride for them. Um, they also knew that they would be in Egypt and that eventually, you know, if you go to the Joseph Smith translations in uh, Genesis chapter 50 and stuff like that, you'll, you'll see as well as going into the Book of Mormon in Nephi, you'll see that uh, Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, right, who became the second in command, had prophesied, even naming Moses by name, right? Saying that that there would, uh, you know, a great prophet would arise and stuff like that. You know, even going on to to talk about the Savior and to prophesy about the Savior and how the Savior would be a, a you know a great prophet like unto Moses and stuff like that. There's some really cool meaty stuff there that I would encourage you to check out in conjunction with reading uh, the source material here in Come Follow Me in, in Exodus. You know, there's there really is some cool stuff, and that really opens up. It opens up your understanding and your eyes as to what's going on, and it sets the stage and helps us to digest this stuff a little better. So really, they understood that they were to inherit a promised land, right? And that they would await the coming of the Messiah. They knew that, right? That was a huge, a huge uh, deal to them. Something that they really, really looked after and, and sought for. Now, it's interesting, in, when we come to verse 8, okay, I'm skipping to verse 8. Now, there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Okay, now, that always puzzled me, and, and I remember coming across this, uh, this exact verse on my mission and thinking to myself, that is weird. Something about that verse just didn't sit right with me, didn't make sense. You're, you're telling me that Joseph, he winds up interpreting the, the dream of Pharaoh, the two dreams, telling him that they're one dream, tells him what it means, he is absolutely the reason why Egypt survives as a nation and is able to thrive, right? Selling grain and food to other nations, right? And racking up all sorts of property and um, making all sorts of deals. It was a seller's market <laughs> for Egypt, right? So they come into all of this wealth and power, directly because of Joseph. Why would there arise a pharaoh in Egypt who knew not Joseph? Why? Well, let's go to the Old Testament student manual, and it will talk about this. And this is, uh, this, this is one source. I've checked this out in a couple of different things, and they, they kind of corroborate each other. 
uh, really interesting. So Old Testament student manual, many scholars speculate that Joseph came to power in Egypt while the nation was under the, dom the domination of the Hiskos people. The ancient historian Manetho called the Hiskos the shepherd kings and told how their conquest and d dominion were bitterly hated by the Egyptians. The Hiskos were Semitic peoples from the lands north and east of Egypt, since Jacob and his family were also Semitic. It is easy to understand how Joseph would be viewed with favor by the Hiskos and also how, when the Hiskos were finally overthrown, and driven out of Egypt, the Israelites would suddenly fall from favor with the nation or with the native Egyptians. Now that's pretty interesting, isn't it? So you have these guys who who were probably extremely close and buddy buddy with the ruling class of the time. However, there's some infighting where the original Egyptians, okay, which it's the exact same situation as the, as the Hebrews and the Egyptians afterward. There's enmity between the ruling class there, who has the Hiskos, who has taken over Egypt for that amount of time, who made cool with the Hebrews, the original inhabitants of Egypt, overthrow the Hiskos, taking back their kingdom. The so now the original uh, Egyptians have it back. And they... After that, they set their eyes on the Hebrews. You can imagine how they would feel about them, right? And how there would, now there's a natural enmity between the Hebrews and the original inhabitants of Egypt. Because these guys were cool with the, uh, the, the conquerors who had conquered them for a time. Uh, very interesting to think about and adds a whole lot of understanding to, to that verse. Uh, well, those couple of verses where they're like, uh, this is a problem. We got a whole bunch of these guys here who were loyal and cool with the Hiskos. So if the Hiskos ever want to come back, they've got an ally on the inside now, right? A neighboring, very close neighbor to us. So that's, you know, that was kind of cool to think about for me and to kind of rediscover as I read through this stuff. Um, let's go to verse 13 now. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with rigor. Now notice it mentions that word rigor. Uh, if you go to the definition of rigor... In this context, it's talking about demanding, difficult, or extreme conditions. Okay? This was one of those situations where it wasn't like it was just light work. These guys were working, they were getting worked to the bone. They were getting worked extraordinarily hard. Again, there's that enmity there, right? They wanted them to, to just... To just be tired and work all the time. And then we come here to verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved... Oh, excuse me. So Pharaoh, he commanded the midwives to kill the children if they are males, but they utterly refuse. Okay? Now, because of them having, you know... They've got this slave class now under them that are extremely numerous, that are a threat, right, because of their numbers, because of the numbers of males that they have there, you know, military in the making, right? If they so choose, and if they can get hold of weapons, then they've got a force to contend with that is a serious threat. And so they institute a ancient practice, as we will find out, where they where basically said, you know, let's control the population, let's uh, let's command the midwives to kill the children, but the midwives aren't going to be having it, as as we as we read here, uh, verse seventeen. But the midwives feared God, and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. 
And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. For they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Okay, now what does that mean? That probably sounds kind of strange. If you go to the footnote, it will take you to the Book of Mormon, where Nephi is explaining how in the wilderness, they, you know, him, his brothers, uh, the uh, the the children, the, the the sons and daughters of Ishmael, right? Their whole families, uh, their wives. He hones in on the wives and says that they did give plenty of suck in the wilderness, even though they subsisted on raw meat, and that they were strong like unto the men, and that they were able to bear their burdens, right, without complaining. This seems to be the blessing that God has given to, to the Hebrews at this time as well, was that he made them strong, right? He made their wives tough, so that as they were having their children and stuff, they were they were very robust women. They were very strong, and they had plenty of energy to be able to to bear their children. Right? It's one of those things, and this really is cool because the midwives. I mean, they they refused. They took their their heads in their hands with this. You know, they really their lives were on the line because they straight up just said no. Uh, no, Pharaoh, we won't be doing that. We will not be killing the children of, of Israel. And because of that, the Lord winds up blessing them. Uh, really cool. So, this is interesting here. Uh, why did Pharaoh want to kill the boys? I, I'm, I'm posing a question here. Was it only population control? This is interesting. Okay, both the ancient Jewish historian Josephus and Jonathan ben Uziel, another ancient Jewish writer, recorded that the Pharaoh had a dream wherein he was shown that a man soon to be born would deliver Israel from bondage. And this dream motivated the royal decree to drown the male children. Okay, now this is that's quoted from the Old Testament student manual, but that's... In the Old Testament student manual, it will give you the quote from uh, Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, okay, Book 2, Chapter 9. Okay, there's, you can go check that out if you want to. It's a big old long citing list here, but just know that you can find that in the Old Testament student manual. That's pretty interesting. And it gives a whole, it, it widens our, our 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 keyhole that we're looking through here, right? Until now, we're getting a we're getting a picture of the room on the other side. We're understanding. Okay, it wasn't just population control. You know, when you have an army at your disposal and you have weaponry and technology above uh, the the slaves, right? Like, yeah, they, they can pose a threat and they can do some damage, but really, like, when you've got bows and arrows, when you've got spears, when you've got chariots, you can mow them down pretty easily, right? And you can see where the pharaoh, he gets this dream, right? And he's like, okay. okay. And now, it's interesting because this has happened before. This has happened before. The Jews as well as uh, the Muslims, as well as many people of the Middle East, they all have um, oral traditions, right? And I'm going to go with the, the Jewish one here, because I think that we can glean a lot from Jewish oral tradition. Um, there's a story of Nimrod and Abraham, right? Now, Nimrod if you'll remember, was the great-grandson of Ham, okay, the grandson of Cush. So he's a descendant from the loins of Ham, uh, who was cursed from the priesthood, right? Now, Nimrod, 
basically his his line was cursed to be uh, servants to to the the children of Shem. And Abraham was obviously a descendant of Shem. So Abraham's father, Terah, uh, he was not valiant in his testimony of Christ. He wound up uh, turning against his family and following Nimrod. Right, Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. There's also a lot of there's a lot of stuff involved with this that Hugh Nibley talks about as well. Um, it talks about how Nimrod. I'm, I'm taking a, a, a side step here just to explain something real quick because I think it adds to the story. Nibley, Hugh Nibley talks about how Nimrod was in possession of a garment. Okay, now if you go back to the story of Noah and Ham, right? It talks about how Ham somehow it's not clear in the text in the in the Old Testament. But it talks about how he disrespected Noah when Noah got drunk and was naked and dancing and then passed out, right? <laughs> okay. And uh, his his other two sons wound up like taking and, and walking backwards and putting the, you know, putting a garment over him to cover his nakedness. Well, Ham did something different to that. And Nibley points us in the direction of Ham actually stealing the garment. Now, this garment was special in that it was the garment of Adam, right? And it was also how Noah was able to, because he was in possession of this garment, why the animals uh, would, would listen and give reverence to Noah and obey him in the ark and stuff. And I'm giving you a super... Cliff Notes version of this. You can look all of this stuff up. It's fascinating. Okay, but long long story short, Nimrod is in possession of this garment, and he is, quote-unquote, a mighty hunter. You know, I, I tend to believe that he cheated a little bit in his hunting technique <laughs> in, in having possession of the garment of Adam, okay? Um... But at any rate, going back to the to the oral tradition of the of the of the Jews, so Nimrod is in possession of of this garment, and he winds up conquering and gathering followers, uh, conquering more, and pretty soon he has a kingdom, right? And he sets up his seat um, in Babylon, where he starts building the Tower of Babel, right? And this is in the land of Shinar. Um. He winds up uh, turning people away from from Jehovah to the worship of Baal worship, right? And this tower was the was referred to as the shame in ancient times because of the sexual perversions and rites and stuff like that that happened there. It really was a an antithesis to our our temples and the temples of of Jehovah back in that day as well. Um. So everybody around that time was worshiping idols, uh, brought in polytheism and stuff like that. This is um, also where, like the, there's a lot that goes back to this stuff. If you understand the theology of of uh, ancient Egypt, of Greek mythology, of the Romans, uh, even going back to like. The Vikings, there. Have you ever studied those things and seen all of these threads that kind of come together? It all comes from Nimrod and from his original breaking away and establishing a kind of a, a like a, I guess at the time a worldwide pagan uh, cult that was. It borrowed heavily from the truth, but then twisted it into something completely nasty. Uh, Nimrod, he knew that there was to be... Basically, he knew that he was not set up. He was not God's chosen. He was not from the loins of Shem. And he knew that 
that from the loins of Shem would arise, obviously, the, the Messiah eventually, but there would also arise a child who would basically become the king, who would be the anointed, you know, the true uh, birthright ruler, who would inherit, right, the, the, the priesthood and all that stuff. Well, it's talking about Abraham. Um, and so Nimrod, in his um, paranoia, right, he follows in the same, he kind of, I guess, sets the stage and sets the, the, uh, the original argument for uh, infanticide by saying, you know what, uh, we're going to take all of the pregnant women right now who are, you know, everybody who's pregnant. We're going to bring them in, especially if they're of the, the loins of Shem. And we're going to bring them into the palace, and the, the palace is going to become a giant maternity ward. And we're going to watch over. And my astrologers are going to watch the skies, and they're going to watch for any sign that a son is born, right? Well, Terra had wanted to have a son, but he wasn't able to, and he was getting old. And they wind up seeing a star, the astrologers, you know, his, his wise men and, and uh, magicians and astrologers, they see a star coming from the east, signifying that a child had been born. And so he says, okay, look, round up everybody, look, let's look. If they have a female child, let them go with presents. If it's a boy, kill them on the spot. Okay? Well, the child that had been born was Terah's child. Okay? This was Abraham. And Terah was, he was also, he was basically second in command to Nimrod. He was one of his, his uh, strictest followers. He was one of his, his uh, you know, very, very loyal subjects. And he didn't have it in him to kill his own son, especially after waiting so long. So he swapped out Abraham for a servant's son, and they killed the servant's son. And Terah secretly took Abraham and hid him away. Uh, and he, who he hid him with was actually Grandpa Noah, right? Also, Grandpa Shem, who was living with Noah up in Ararat. Uh, separated from Babylon, okay? Fascinating story. I don't want to go into it too much more. I just want to show you the kind of things that we can, that we can find, patterns. Amazing stories that repeat themselves here. Like, it's a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ, of what happens to Jesus Christ. Incredible stuff. You know, we, we, we can go to the story of Christ and Herod, and you can see it's... It's a pattern of, of what we've just heard twice now, right? Of Pharaoh talking about Moses and of Nimrod with Abraham, right? It's incredible. I don't want to get too far off base here, but I think that that is just, it's fun to explore this stuff. And we're not even all that far into, you know, into the come follow me material. And we've already come all across all this great stuff, Okay. Um, so basically, yeah, the, the midwives refuse, they're blessed by God, and Pharaoh has to take a different route, a different approach, okay? And now the approach that he takes is this, verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive, okay? So you're saying, well, what was the approach? It's in the very first, uh, the very first line there. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Okay, He turned the people loose on them and said, Hey, you see a boy? You toss him into the Nile. Toss him to the crocodiles. Okay, Super evil, super wicked. Okay? All because he wants to hang on to his power that he knows that the, the God of Israel does not want him to have. 
Okay, let's go to chapter 2. So Moses was born to Amram and Jacobed, uh, who were descendants of Levi. Now that's important, okay? Don't just, don't skim over that, okay? The, the genealogy is always something to take note of. And my, my dad will tell you that all day long, right? So he being a descendant of Levi is significant. And just, just keep that in mind as we go forward here. Okay, let's go to chapter, or excuse me, verse 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Okay. So, obviously, we, we remember from the story that um, Jacobed had taken and created a little, a little uh, ark crib for Moses. She couldn't bear to see her baby. She had hid him away for three months. She couldn't bear to see him killed, and so she entrusted him to the Lord. Okay? And as we will see, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Okay? Uh, verse 6, And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him, and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Okay, let's pause again. How did she know it was one of the Hebrews' children? I mean, obviously, circumstances maybe could have, you know, there's some strong indications there. Um, I happen to believe, and I think that it's it's pretty much clear-cut and dry, that there was a clear difference in uh, skin tone with the Egyptians and with the Hebrews, right? It was obvious that, you know, this kid was not an Egyptian, <laughs> So all the stories and all the cartoons and stuff that show Moses thinking that he was a true he or a true Egyptian, and they having to break it to him later in life, and it's this big shock, uh, complete nonsense, complete Hollywood. He knew everybody knew this guy stood out like a sore thumb in in he in Pharaoh's court. I guarantee it. Okay, he was obviously not an Egyptian. He had a different nationality, a different uh, skin tone, okay? Verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water, okay? Now, I happened to, to look at that verse 10 and think, Hold on a second. And maybe I'm the only one that thinks this way. But I said, Moses, the name Moses, is that Hebrew or is that Egyptian? Because if I were to adopt a kid from anywhere else, right, China, Zimbabwe, whatever, okay, I'm not going to name that kid after his nationality. I'm going to name him after my nationality, right? So I thought Moses, there has to be, Moses has to have been a, a, an Egyptian name. That has to be an Egyptian name, especially where she says she drew him out of the water. Why would she use Hebrew? They didn't speak Hebrew in Egypt. I don't know if that's news to anybody, but they did not speak Hebrew in Egypt. They spoke Egyptian, right? Okay. So I did a little bit of study. Um, and there's some, there is some stuff on, about that okay, that you can find. So this is just a scholar that I happen to come across. Okay, Take it with a grain of salt. It's, it's, this is an interesting category. This is not doctrine. This is just something to consider. The verb uh, MS, I don't know how to pronounce that, is incorporated into the royal birth names of New Kingdom pharaohs. So you have Amos, which is A-H-M-O-S-E. And the name of the Pharaoh, uh, or Pharaoh's name, Amos, it means the moon god is born. Okay, and and Thutmos, Thoth is born as the suffix as the suffix Mos, M-O-S-E. In the Greek forms of the names, the verb M-S becomes M-O-S-I-S, Moses. Okay, Amosis and Thutmosis; those are the names of those other pharaohs. So Amosis and Thutmosis. The name Ramesses follows a similar pattern. Re-mes-su. 
Okay. Re, R-E, is the one who bore him. The verb is also found in non-royal personal names such as Tamos. Uh, Ta is born, that's the meaning, and Ramos, Ra, is born. All of the above names feature what scholars call a divine or theophoric element, but the Hebrew name Moses stands alone in the biblical text. It has no God's name attached to it. Scholars have debated whether it may have once included a God's name that was later dropped. Okay? That intrigued me. That was interesting. I, if I had to, uh, you know, if I had to hazard a bet, a guess, I would say that Moses' name originally did have an attachment to it, that Moses was a suffix to something else, okay? Because Moses was born and raised as, or not born, he was raised and as, as an Egyptian, okay? And I think that that plays into some things that we have never thought of before. At least I've never heard before. Maybe you know. Maybe I think I'm coming up with this, and I haven't. But I think that that's very interesting. And it's also interesting that he would, um, at a future point, take that name off of his name and just go by plain Moses. Okay. We'll get to that. I'm getting. I'm getting excited here. Okay. Uh, in the New Testament, Stephen, Stephen made a lengthy speech about the dealings of the Lord with the house of Israel. Concerning Moses' youth, Stephen related, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. Okay, he was no slouch. Now, let's, take, let's pause here for a minute. He said that he was mighty in words and deeds. Moses was mighty in words and deeds. Well, what do we know about Moses? Okay, Moses says himself he was slow of speech. So, what do we have here? Okay, continuing on. Josephus said that Moses was a very handsome and educated prince and a mighty warrior in the cause of the Egyptians. Okay. I find that interesting. He was educated... Okay, he was mighty warrior in the cause of the Egyptians. Okay, this is all from the Old Testament student manual, all available for free on, on uh, churchofjesuschrist.org. Continuing on, as a prince, Moses may have had access to the royal libraries of the Egyptians as well as the scriptural records of the Israelites as taught by his mother. Because remember, his mom was his nursemaid. Quite possibly, he read the prophecies of Joseph and was led by the Spirit to understand his divine appointment to deliver his brethren, the Israelites. Stephen's address implied that Moses understood his responsibility. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them. But they understood not. Okay, that's Acts 7, 23, 25. Paul in Hebrews added further to the concept, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay. Nothing but what we've been talking about with Moses' name. Interesting. Okay, take it with a grain of salt. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Moses' mother, Jacobed, likely taught him by the principles and righteous traditions of the Hebrews as she nursed and cared for him. Okay, it's the Old Testament student manual. Okay, interesting things to consider here. Now that that's all good stuff right there, but what I'm saying with the him taking his, his name and taking off the part that maybe a god was attributed to, especially with him being drawn from the Nile, I think it's interesting. I think it's kind of fun. Okay, verse 11. Uh, let's see. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and he looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. Moses 
obviously ends up having to, he has to get at, you know, he, he goes in there and he takes care of business, right? And he kills this Egyptian for uh, whatever he was doing to the Hebrew slave, okay? Beating on him, about to kill him. I imagine the, the Egyptian was probably getting ready to take the life of the Hebrew. And Moses stepped in and saved a life by taking another, okay? Because of this, uh, Moses has to get out of Dodge. He has to leave Egypt, his home, okay? He has to leave Egypt where he is fluent and his first language probably was Egyptian. That's, that's the gospel according to Alan. I don't know if that's a fact, okay? But I'm, in my mind, Moses was an Egyptian in everything but skin tone. Okay? I'm sure that he, I think he was taught, obviously, by his mom and stuff like that, his, his, um, his biological mother, and was taught, you know, and eventually was converted to the gospel. You know, I, I wish we had more on that, because I, I find that fascinating. I think that um, he probably was obviously introduced to both, uh, both religions, the religion of the Egyptians, the, the polytheism, the stuff that dates back to Nimrod and that descends from Nimrod, okay? And he, was, he would have obviously been exposed by his nursemaid, uh, his mother, biological mother, to uh, Jehovah, right? And ultimately, he chose Jehovah in the end. But I just find it very interesting that he has to leave Egypt. He has to leave his home. And I think that on maybe on some level he had to have had some understanding of the Hebrew language, um, but I, I don't know, right? However that happened, Egypt was basically, that, that was his home and he had to leave. And I think we can stop at this point and we can say, okay, we have some symbolism here. Egypt has been used in the scriptures um, in the same way that Babylon has been used to depict the natural man's world or uh, lifestyle, you could say. Okay, It stands in direct opposition to Zion in everything that it stands for. Okay, Babylon the Great, right? Egypt. Uh, these can be almost synonymous with each other. And can use be used interchangeably and metaphorically. Okay, so we have Moses leaving the world. We have him leaving the world and leaving the natural man behind. Okay. He has to travel. This was fun to study. He has to travel around 440 miles to get to... Uh, to get to Midian, right, which is modern-day Arabia. So it's on the other side. He had to go around the Gulf of Arabia to get to Midian. Probably wasn't an easy journey, okay? So, and I've had a lot of people, you know, a lot of people will just gloss over this, and sometimes I'll just kind of, just to be a smart aleck, I'll say, well, who are the Midianites, Right? This this stuff's important to know, brothers and sisters. So the descendants of Abraham and his wife Keturah through their son Midian. That's who the Midianites are, okay? So they are also descendants of Abraham. Okay, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had several daughters, and they or had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Okay, seven, just I'm just Tossing this out there, seven is the number of completeness and perfection. Okay, so whenever we see numbers, pay attention. Verse 17, And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Reul, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? Now, Reul is another name for Jethro, okay? You can just... You can, you can write in Jethro in there in your scriptures if you want. It's the same exact dude, okay? 
Continuing on, and they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. So they they said, uh, an Egyptian dude, okay? I imagine he had either an accent and he had Egyptian clothing, which led them to believe that he was an Egyptian, right? Even though he may not have looked uh, exactly like an Egyptian in skin tone. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter, and she bare him a son. And he called his name Jershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Okay, And if you look up the name Jershom, it means a stranger there. Okay, they really like to do that back in the day, apparently. Like to name their, their kids after the situation that they were in. Verse 23, And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by the reason of the bondage. Okay? So if you go to like Bible chron uh, the Bible chronology and stuff like that, Okay, process of time, you can just say, you can write this in your scriptures, process of time equals 40 years. Okay, it's a long time. Long enough for the Pharaoh who had it out for Moses to die. Okay, and everybody that kind of had it out for him died. Uh, verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Okay, we're at the end of chapter 2 here. This is really good stuff, brothers and sisters. It really is. Like, we can look at all of this, this stuff, and I know I, I kind of moved fast because I wanted to get through everything uh, in the time allotment that I have. But we can look at all of this stuff, and, and this is two chapters of Come, Follow Me. Or, you know, two chapters of, of Exodus that we have in Come, Follow Me. And we still have another couple of chapters to go. And look at, look at what we have discovered here. Look at the symbolism. Look at the, the metaphors. Look at the, the fantastic things that we have been able to to study without going to really weird sources, right? All I've really used is, I think I've used one source that wasn't from, uh, from an LDS source. That was just, it was something to consider that I thought was kind of interesting, okay? And when I get to the, uh, to the other side and find out that that wasn't true, no sweat off my back, right? doesn't matter. But we, when we can find these, these things that help these scriptures to come alive and help us to really understand and find a deeper meaning to what we're studying here. This is, this is what the prophet is admonishing us to do, right? I remember President Nelson saying, you know, the Lord has such wonderful things that he wants to share with you, right? He has such wonderful things that he wants to share with you. But if we don't ask, if we don't seek, if we don't knock, how can he share these things with us, right? The stuff that I have studied, the stuff that I have discovered through going through these two chapters has been awesome and has been a huge testimony builder to me and has helped me connect some dots where before they hadn't been connected, right? I know some things independent of, of this study, but when I went through this study, it connected dots to things that I had already been studying, and now I've got a bigger picture. The blinders, the spiritual blinders that I have are taken off, right? And now I've got a more complete understanding of the story of Moses. I've got a, more under, a better understanding as to why things were the way they were and why things happened the way they happened, right? Going into, into the, into the um, 
decisions that Pharaoh made and stuff, going into the history even further back in the history of the Old Testament. There, there are some plain and, plesh, and precious truths here that are just waiting to be discovered, and we have resources at our fingertips to be able to study this stuff. And of course, above all, at the end, we can take, and really from these two chapters, what we can take from this is that, you know, you can be in the world. You can have access to all of this technology. You can have access to all of this advanced learning, to all of this military might, right? Just like Egypt had. You can be set up to be a, you know, a prince in this area, but you have nothing. You have nothing until you come out of Babylon, until you come out of Egypt. And you humble yourself and become like Moses, right? You, you become a, a what? A shepherd. Who was the greatest shepherd? Christ, right? Moses really is a type and a shadow for us, obviously, but he was... He really was a really cool type and a shadow for Jesus Christ as well. And as he became a shepherd, as he had nothing, which I'm sure he had access to every uh, fancy, you know, smancy thing in Egypt, all the comforts of life, food, you know what I mean? A wonderful bed to sleep in. He gave all that up when he left. And he even gave up his name, didn't he? I think he did, anyway. And he just became regular, plain old Moses, right? The, the, the sheep herder. He was also given something extraordinarily valuable. He was given the Melchizedek priesthood by his father-in-law, Jethro. We learned that through the Doctrine and Covenants. He was also given a family, and not just a family, like he could have had that in Egypt as well, right? He could have married an Egyptian. He had an, an, a forever family. He had an eternal family with Zipporah, his wife, right? And she bears him a son. He's, he now has a family, and any of you who are a parent and a spouse understand the significance of that and the importance and how Really, nothing else matters. After you experience those things, nothing else matters. Your family is more precious than anything in the entire world, right? And he has 40 years to learn to become converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to become ready. He has time to be... Uh, to, to be molded by the Lord until he is actually ready for his calling, right? I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from this. I wanted to take some time and dive into this because it's ultra interesting to me. And I think that we, we can really um, benefit from not just skimming over this stuff, but from actually diving in from following the admonishing advice of our prophet, who is the mouthpiece, who was handpicked by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. When he says, you know, the Lord wants you to understand, he wants you to have, no, he wants to tell you such great things, you know what I mean? We need to do our part. We got to dive into this stuff. We got to dissect it. We got to underline it. We got to highlight it we got to go to those student manuals and study this stuff, see what the prophet said about it. And if we do that, brothers and sisters, I can bear you my testimony that you will grow in your testimony. You will grow in your understanding. And in the words of Joseph Smith, the doctrine will become delicious to you. It'll become delicious to you, right? It'll taste good. Um, I love you guys. I know the world's crazy right now. It was crazy for Moses, too. If we're prepared, we shall not fear. And if we rely on God, 
the same God who preserved the life of Moses, the same God who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, an impossible situation, He will fight our battles for us and He will take care of us if we do our part and if we have faith. And I know that's true. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.